with that, turn uh, in your Bibles to Proverbs 17. If you don't have a Bible, we can get one in your hand. And I'm just going to start by reading uh, verse 1, and then we'll pray, and then we'll just kind of go verse by verse all the way through, see how uh, briefly we can touch. I'm going to touch on each verse, maybe just a, a minute and a half each, so you have to take notes really fast. Uh, but I hope that, uh, that you'll glean some good things out of this chapter. Verse 1, better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. Sounds true, doesn't it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time this evening. Thank you for the privilege we have to gather in the name of Jesus to worship. We pray uh, even now, Lord, that you would just settle our minds, settle our hearts, Lord, remove any distractions or anything that would hinder the work of your spirit. Lord, remove the cares of this day or the cares of this moment. Lord, bring us into your presence. May your word, uh, Lord, just uh, be nourishment and comfort and healing, conviction, whatever it may be, whatever is needed, Lord, you know by your spirit what each person needs. We thank you for this time. Bless it, and may you be glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're, uh, we're cruising through. I, I mentioned that some of these chapters, I might only do a handful of verses. I might even, somewhere down the line, I might do a couple chapters together. But there is a lot of things in here that either we haven't touched on at all or, or it's been a while. So I'm just going to move through uh, our text tonight. And starting with verse 1, again, if you're taking notes, I've titled this, When Less is More. And that'll make sense as we go through some of these passages. Uh, starting here in verse 1. The better is a dry morsel of quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. Uh, if you think about this, uh, better to have some Ritz crackers or maybe a bowl of cereal. It's fancy dinner right there, isn't it? Some of you say, hey, I like that kind of dinner. But uh, better to have that and have peace, to have harmony, to have peace of mind than to have a home full of food choices, social entertaining. You ever seen these... Uh, uh, TV shows, they're like, well, we, do, we like to do a lot of entertaining. I hear that a lot now. I don't, uh, just, uh, so we're going to need a massive floor plan that, uh, that accommodates all kinds of people and all that stuff. And so uh, you might have all that. You could even have extravagance. But if there's contention, if there's arguments, if there's conflict, uh, you'd be better off to have very little but have the peace of mind to have relationships. Uh, I don't know who the author was, but an author unknown, but they said it's not how much we have, but how much we enjoy that makes happiness. Not what we have, but what we enjoy. And um, when we learn contentment, we can enjoy anything that God gives us. Uh, oftentimes, just more creates more greed. Oftentimes, just the more you have just creates more greed. You think that you would say, well, if you get more, you wouldn't really need that much more. No, it actually uh, it has the opposite effect often. And by the way, what Solomon is saying here, he's saying this is not just true, but a fact. Um, it, it, you could read this and just say, yeah, that sounds nice, you know, uh, but I, I, I'd stick with having way more. I don't, I don't want to have less and have peace. I'd rather have more. What he's saying is true in a fact, and I think that um, many people have grown to levels. You think about this. Many people have grown to levels of possessions 
levels of success, at least by the standard of America or this world, they've grown to levels of possessions, levels of success, levels of, of abundance or wealth that they didn't have earlier in life. There was a time in life they did not have all the stuff they have now. And I would argue that many, many people, if you ask them point blank, if they were honest, especially if the Lord is standing there, you ask them point blank, would you be willing to take a few steps back in your possessions and income to really have peace and quietness of mind? Many people would say, no, I can't do it. I can't, I, I, I'll stick with the stress. I'll stick with all the anxiety. I'll stick with the contention. I'll stick with everything else. I could never go back to where I was before. And God would say, but, I, but I'll give you quietness of mind, and I'll give you no strife, and all the, no, no, I, I can't because now I have this stuff when really the stuff has you. Verse 2, a wise servant will rule over a son who causes shame and will share an inheritance among brothers. A wise servant will rule over a son. So, you know, obviously in Bible times you realize that um, servants did not have rank or seniority over flesh and blood. If you were born uh, into nobility or a king's home or someone... But righteous leadership, it says, a wise servant will rule over a son who causes shame. Righteous leadership, righteous parents, righteous kings, righteous leaders, will never gloss over sin and rebellion. I, I, I'm not, my wife and I, we are not the parents that, that say, our kids can do no wrong. Yeah, we, we, over our lifetime, we've told our girls many times, say, look, if we get a bad report, we're going to investigate it as if it's true. Because, well, coming from Christian parents, we don't think many Christian parents that we know are just making stuff up. Now, thankfully, we haven't had to deal with that stuff uh, in, in our lifetime, and I hope that you don't either. But the, uh, the thing is that leadership can't gloss over sin and rebellion. Spiritually, there's no automatic blessings with God, and God doesn't have nepotism and saying, well, you know, you, you were born uh, in the household of Abraham, therefore uh, anything goes. All who inherit the blessings of God have to be faithful servants of God. To inherit the blessing of God, it comes down to obeying God. It's not, well, we're, I was born, uh, my, my grandpappy was a pastor and him before him, so automatically we're grafted in, right? No. Verse 3, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold. Do you enjoy being in the refining pot? I don't see any hands up. You're either really tired or you really don't enjoy being in, this, in the refining pot. Trials in life, frankly, can be blazing hot, can't they? Trials in life can be blazing hot. The longer you live, you're inevitably going to run into some that are really hotter and much more difficult than we'd ever want or we'd ever prescribe for ourselves, and dip more difficult than we ever expected. You know, I really do many times envy little kids who just have an innocence and, and they just laugh and they don't have a care in the world. And you're like, man, Lord, what would we like to go back to that? Because the refining pot is difficult. The furnace is hot. But the Lord, in that process, he's testing our hearts. In Job 23.10, it says, when the Lord is testing me, Test, when the Lord is testing me, I shall come forth as gold. You know, whatever you're going through, 
God's making you into 24 karat gold. 1 Peter 1.7, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold, even beyond gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found in the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't enjoy trials. I'm sure you don't enjoy trials. I have learned to pray and say thank you for them even if I don't know why I'm saying that other than the fact it's direct obedience to Scripture. The Bible says to say thanks in all things. But we can, we can uh, trust that the Lord through that, if he loves us, he's going to purify our heart more and more and more, and our motives will be more, more pure. The way we relate to people will be more Christ-like. So just hang in there and have other people praying with you because the Lord is going to test our hearts. It's going to be difficult, but he promises to get us through. Verse 4, an evildoer gives heed to false lips. A liar listens eagerly to a spiteful tongue. An evildoer gives heed to false lips and eagerly uh, listen to this, uh, gossip or this spiteful tongue. If someone has bad character, you can bet they will, A, lie often. If they have bad character, they say, well, I wouldn't, I, it sound, they sound trustworthy, but the character's bad, usually lying will come with it. Uh, B, they will listen to and believe lies from others. And C, they will enjoy kind of like a sport, slander, gossip, or tearing other people up verbally. You've run into these individuals uh, that just enjoy just tearing people up. Um, but you can bet if that is part of the lifestyle that um, dishonesty and things like that will come along with it. Ralph Waldo Emerson, I'm sure you've all heard of him, he said the force of character is cumulative. The force of character is cumulative. Uh, this other quote from Philip Brooks, he says, character may be manifested in great moments, but it is made in the small ones. And why am I quoting those things? Uh, the force of character is cumulative. Character may be manifested in great moments, but is made in the small ones. Well, all of the small moments of us yielding to the Spirit, all of the small moments of us being conformed to Christ and just little acts of, yes, Lord, I'll bite my tongue, Lord. I won't say that, Lord. That's not, uh, that's not really building this person up. All of those small moments of yielding and saying, not my will, but yours be done. All of the small things like that conform us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. However, all of the small resistance that people, little by little, every time they resist God, and they resist his righteousness. Well, it conforms people to the God of this age. And Satan, he has a forked tongue. And you'll start to be conformed to his behavior. Let's look at verse 5. He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Mocking the poor, glad at calamity. No heart for the poor and enjoying the misery of others is a really bad combination, isn't it? Especially if you want the favor and blessing of God. We know how Jesus' ministry went. We know who he went to. He went to the people that were the down and out, that were in the worst shape, that were in the worst positions of life. Uh, to have that kind of attitude, it's just inviting the judgment of God. Ambrose Bierce, he was actually a 
soldier in the Union Army, went on to be a, a poet and a writer. Matter of fact, he influenced people like Ernest Hemingway and others. He said he had this, he had this observation of people that's not a good observation, but you've seen it at times, and I hope that, I'm sure we've all been guilty at times, if we're really honest, we've been guilty at times of this, but I hope the longer you say, this is less and less of how you would think, but he's observed this in people. He said, looking at some people, he realized for them, happiness and an agreeable sensation arising from contemplating the misery of others. Isn't that true with a lot of people? They get some level of enjoyment when they look at other people in misery. And that's not how we ought to be. Jesus, by the way, never thought that way. He had a heart for those who were hurting. He had a heart for those who were broken. He had a heart for those uh, who had experienced calamity. Let's look at verse 6. Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children is their father. Fathers, we may... We may not, and in fact, we will not take a single penny with us beyond this lifetime. Not taking anything with us. Our titles won't be there. Our accomplishments won't be there. All that's going to fade away. But we can have godly children, and the godly children can have godly children, and their godly children can have godly children. That's what's called legacy. If we live and walk like Christ, understand that our children just might be watching us because they are, right? And so this is what Solomon is saying. Children's children, that's the crown you want to wear of those that have followed in your footsteps. So if we're following in footsteps that would bring them to heaven, then each generation is a wise thing to do. It's the wisest thing we can do. Verse 7, excellent speech is not becoming to a fool, much less lying lips to a prince. Excellent speech coming from someone who's really foolish. Men or women that have poor character can be really well-spoken, right? They can have poor character but be really well-spoken. They can be very polished. They can really give really good speeches but if the character's poor, it never really rings true, does it? It falls, uh, it falls flat. The hypocrisy really is a turnoff to just about everybody. And Jesus wants us to be sincere, genuine. Your yes be yes, your no be no. Not one thing in character, but other thing in the way we talk or the way we position ourselves. Verse 8. A present is precious. A present is a precious stone in the eyes of its possessor. Wherever he turns, he prospers. Grateful people are thankful for the little blessings and the big ones. Practice being thankful for the little blessings. Because there's a lot more little ones in life than there are big ones. If you're waiting for the big blessings, you're not going to. Well, I'm going to wait till Thanksgiving Day, because that's the day we kind of pull it all together and say thanks, right? Well, lucky for us, it's this month, right? So, no, but the little things, thankful people are thankful for the little things as well as the big things, but that attitude of gratitude will allow that person to prosper in any conditions. That's what this text says. It says, a 
present as a precious stone in the eyes of its possessor. Wherever he turns, he prospers. Those that have a thankful heart can prosper in any condition, in any place. And we know this is true because we have God with us. We can prosper in any place, in any condition. That doesn't say that you're going to become the next Warren Buffett, but prosper as God would look at it. Verse 9, he who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. Those who really walk in love or Christ-like love, they seek to protect the reputation of others. I, I hope that when you look around you, you protect the reputation of your brothers and sisters, and you would always not assume the worst, but assume the best. And you always have that opportunity to go to a person directly, but love protects the reputation of others. We always want to choose to give the Holy Spirit time to work in people, to give them a place of restoration, a place of healing. We're not throwing people under the bus for their first mistake or even beyond that. Um, people that have the heart of the Lord also are forgiving people. They don't hold a list. They're not list keepers. Remembering why, what Christ has done for us. We remember what Christ has done for us. It's really hard to keep a list on everybody else when we remember what he's done for us. 1 Peter 4, 8, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And I say all the time, not just sins, but mistakes, errors, imperfect people. We all make mistakes, you know. I think the announcements, it said, good morning tonight. He's not in here. I, I can say that because I've, I've had plenty of mess-ups. Up, but again, you thought the announcements were so long we went from morning till evening, but we didn't. It was just evening. You had to be here earlier. So. But again, love covers all of these things because we're all imperfect and we all need uh, to be forgiven or comforted or, hey, you know, let me just pray with you and that God would just kind of resolve this in your life and you see victory in it. That's what a, a person that has the heart of the Lord does. Verse 10, rebuke is more effective to a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. A wise woman or a wise man is going to be teachable, is going to be coachable, is going to be willing to be corrected. Rebukes never feel real good. And by the way, you know, not all, most rebukes should not be like uh, any kind of harsh thing. They should just more be... Uh, Again, more like coaching or, hey, uh, this is something I think that I found has been valuable in my life. Perhaps you would find it valuable in your life. But uh, you have to have relationships to speak into people's life. So you have to build relationships, and people have to be open to bi-directional feedback and mentoring and discipleship and all of those things. But provided all those things are there, wise people invite it. I, I look for mentors in my life. I have them. I reach out. I want feedback. I want collaboration. I want people to say, or I want to say, hey, what do you think about this? But rebuke may not feel great. Sometimes we are corrected in ways that we really don't want to be, perhaps uh, at work or things like that. But wise people respond positively, positively to it, and so positively that they're able to avoid future unnecessary rebuke. But a fool, and that's someone who's set in their own ways. You can't, hey, I, it's my way or the highway, I don't need anyone's help. I do it my own way. Someone unwilling to hear from God or anyone else, it's like talking to a brick wall. 
That's what Solomon's saying. You can give him 100 blows. You're wasting your time. After about the 21st, you might want to move on. Verse 11. An evil man seeks only rebellion, therefore a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Eventually, a cruel message is going to come. Eventually, the resistance of an individual, the rebellion of an individual, will be met with heartache in their own life. It'll be met with judgment or destruction. Now, this underscores uh, what the New Testament calls the mystery of lawlessness. You ever heard that term? The mystery of lawlessness. And that is um, our human flesh condition that we're naturally attracted to things that we know are destructive. Right? So if, if God says, do not commit adultery or fornication, well, throughout mankind's history, people are attracted to it anyway, even though God says it's to invite the judgment of God. You know, do not use the name of the Lord thy God in vain. But people are attracted. As a matter of fact, that's the one word they want to use is a, a strong curse word. Uh, let me grab the name of God or Jesus, right? It's to invite the judgment of God. Rebellion, hatred, gossip, all of these things, uh, though we know they're destructive, our flesh is naturally drawn to them. It's the mystery of lawlessness. God told Adam and Eve, don't touch of this one tree. The mystery of lawlessness, which tree do they want to go to? Those of you who have toddlers, you know how this works. You can't touch this magnet now. right? It, you've highlighted the one thing. Moving on, verse 12, let a man... Meet a bear rod with her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. Some type of foolish behavior will result in blind rage. Um, if you have children, get rage corrected while they're young because it's very hard to control once they get older. We go into the youth correctional facility. Now, many of them uh, come from horrible home situations. That's a different story altogether, but... Um, you don't want someone to be raised that uh, in their foolishness and their folly, they just are like a bear that's gone wild. Because, it's, you know, you ever seen a, if a mother bear lose her cubs? It is, it's on. to tear anything in their path. And then you have to have, the authorities will have to deal with the person because people and parents can no longer do it. So we have to, we're going to be in Ephesians, we're going to get into uh, uh, parenting and, and children uh, when we get to chapter 6, so we'll get a chance to look at some of those things. Verse 13, whoever rewards evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. We know that the sins of the fathers can extend to future generations, but the sins of the fathers and leaders, they, they never just fall on themselves. Any individual in a leadership position, their sin never affects just them. David's sin of the census affected other people, right? Saul's sin affected the nation. Innocent people always suffer when leaders, fathers, parents, choose sin over submission to the Lord. Verse 14, the beginning of strife is like the releasing of water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel begins. Now, that seems pretty straightforward, right? If you're refereed in your house, you're like, hey, hey, let's, let's, let's stop this before it gets out of hand, right? Because it has a, contention has a way of just kind of escalating. Those of you that are managers in your, in your work, you want to de-escalate things before they become beyond 
the scope of pulling it back. Once a dam breaks, there's no stopping the water, is there? It's, gonna, it, it's coming out at too high a speed. And the same is true with human arguments and disagreements and hatred. It can get out of control in no time. It can take on a life of its own. So it's a wise thing when we see contention between, uh, even, even in the church, you know, uh, pastoral leadership, we're called to broker peace. If we see that, hey, they, these two aren't getting along, hey, what can we do to help resolve this? Because it, things fester, don't they? You get, you know, got conflicts that need to be put to rest well before they get out of control. Verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them are alike an abomination to the Lord. Justifying the wicked and condemning the just. God hates this. This is abomination. He hates this. And this is what happens a lot. Governments do it. They condemn innocent people. And yet they lift up people who are doing things that God does not like and does not endorse. This happens with religious systems, you know. Religious systems have put people to death uh, down through the centuries. I'm not, uh, I'm not talking about, and uh, religious systems that even have represented the Bible. You hear this a lot of times, well, you Christians have killed more, uh, hold on, just time out. If they're really born again, I'm pretty sure they weren't the ones doing all the stuff that you're, that you're referencing. But and, but born-again Christians have made mistakes in history, too. I'm not, I'm not saying that as a broad brush. I'm saying, but for the most part, religious systems that actually condemn innocent people are not led by born-again believers. They're led by religious systems. Jesus confronted a lot of religious leaders and said they were a brood of vipers. And they used the same Old Testament he taught out of. So we know that that wasn't a litmus test for, well... They must be from the Lord because they were using the same Old Testament scrolls that Jesus was using. No. They had a system that actually was based on pride in themselves. But this happens in academia. This happens in the media, condemning people that are actually standing for what is right and actually lifting up people that uh, are standing for things that are sin or evil. Happens with celebrities and some of their uh, diatribes that you'll see. And yet it happens verbally all the time, you know, just in the course of your life at times. You might, you might be falsely accused. Jesus said if you follow him, you're going to be at times falsely accused. It happens or spoken ill of. We see this oftentimes, people tearing down Christianity, tearing down the scriptures. You won't find anything, um, you won't find any news more fake than someone railing, for example, on a kind, compassionate believer that is speaking up for innocent lives of unborn babies. That's something in our, our, where you'll see those people pointed at like they're the worst thing on earth because they're standing up for an unborn life. I'm not talking about the Westboro kind of nonsense and that, that that's not even the Christian faith. That's something completely different. I'm talking about a kind, considerate believer that says, I believe that the taking of unborn life is wrong. And then uh, the same kind of um, criticism, then they turn around and talk about how kind and compassion the abortion industry is. 
because of all of its greater good. And I understand the arguments, but they won't hold any water when you talk before God face to face. Look at verse 16. Why is there in the hand of the fool the purchase price of wisdom since he has no heart for it? That's a good question. Some people will profess a desire to turn away from the way they're living, but in their heart, there's no real desire to turn. There's no commitment in their valley of decision. They're in a valley of decision, but they're not deciding to say, yes, Lord. They don't really want the wisdom of God. Therefore, it's only words. There are people in your life after a while, and you have to be, this has to be truly, uh, you have to have the Holy Spirit, but some people will waste your time when you come to realize, I've told you three times what the Bible says, and we're having this discussion again. This is what the scriptures say. This is the only way to do this. Well, I, I, I heard what you said, but um, all right. We can't really waste any more time here because I can't help you if you don't. Uh, a lot of um, I remember, I think it was Skip Heitzig years ago I heard first say he would enter a counseling session and he'd start, the, he, after a while he realized um, he would start a counseling session and he goes, all right, I'm going to show you exactly what the Bible says, but I need to know right now. If I show you what the Bible says, will you do it? And if they said yes, they could move forward. If they said no, he'd say, well, the counseling session is over. Thank you very much. Verse 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times and a brother born of adversity. Some friends in life will enjoy hanging out with you. They'll enjoy the barbecue. They'll enjoy doing the game with you, all the kind of fun stuff. Some, if they're even better friends, they'll be there when you have to move. You got to load stuff on the truck. You know, that uh, they won't find a reason to run the other direction on that Saturday. Oh, we got eight million things to do. I would love to help you, but. And then a few, they'll not only be there for to help you move and stuff like that, they'll be there for you to pray with you, to encourage you, to support, perhaps even be there, even helping you physically meet needs for you in your darkest hours. They won't just simply say, hey, be warm but not give you a coat, as James talks about. Those are the friends that are for not only the good times, and it's good to have friends in the good times, but also for those times of adversity and difficulty. Those are the kind of friends we all want to be and need to be. The reason is a friend like that has taken on the nature of Christ. They're there for adversity. They're there for the heartache times. They're not like the prodigal's friends that were all around when everything was his credit card was still working. Everything is going well. You may not have much, but if you have godly spirit-led friends, you have more than you think you do. If you have godly spirit-led friends. Verse 18. A man devoid of understanding shakes his hand and a pledge and becomes surety for his friend. Wisdom remind us, reminds us not to make hasty decisions. Don't rush into decisions. Think about them. Pray about them. Be settled about them. Verse 19, he who loves transgression loves strife. I don't know why anyone loves strife, but again, that's the mystery of lawlessness. And he who exalts his gate seeks destruction. 
Anyone who thrives on conflict is walking in flesh and sin, and certainly the sin of pride. If you love conflict, if you thrive on conflict, I don't think anyone here does, or I hope that no one here does, but I have met people that do thrive on conflict. I'm like, sometimes wondering, do you just like to get into knockdown dragouts? I mean, uh, but Jesus changes that disposition in a heart, doesn't he? Uh, verse 20, he who has a deceitful heart finds no good. He who has a perverse tongue falls into evil. The first half of this verse, he who has a deceitful heart finds no good. I, I've run into people like this. Uh, when I was in business, I definitely did. People who are dishonest often don't trust anybody because they think everyone's dishonest. People that are dishonest and don't trust anyone at all, they think everyone is equally as dishonest as they are. Their deceptive character, though, will eventually be made manifest. And eventually, it'll come out in the wash. Eventually, those things will be revealed. I'm a, I'm a, I was always concerned when I met people who thought everybody was lying. I really was. I, mean, I was in business, and when I would hear someone had that, I'm like, that light bulb would go ding, ding, you know, red flag. Probably can't trust this person. They think everyone is lying. Now, there are people that are lying, <laughs> but there's also honest people. And hopefully the Lord gives you discernment. Who is who? And he will. The Lord will give us that discernment. Verse 21, uh, he who begets a scoffer does so to his sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. This also combines with verse 25. So drop down verse 25 as well. A foolish son is a grief to his father in bitterness to her who bore him. Boy, it breaks a parent's heart to see a child reject the ways of the Lord. That's a fact. We have a number of prodigals that are represented by families in this church. Uh, we pray for them. We pray with those families. If you have a prodigal, don't feel like so guilty and shame over it. Uh, I was at a pastor's conference, and probably uh, one quarter of the pastors had to stand that were heartbroken over prodigals in their families. It, 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 at the end of the day, each person makes an individual decision to follow the Lord. You cannot make your kid follow the Lord, but you can lead them in righteousness. And, and I believe that God... We'll honor that, and many times we've seen over the years them come back and then uh, restore that relationship. But it still breaks a parent's heart when they see their child reject the ways of the Lord. Uh, and if a teens were in here right now, I'd tell them, don't do it, teens. We tell our girls, matter of fact, we told them today, we, uh, we, we were joking with our daughters today, we said, if you ever walk away from the Lord, we will pray failure into your life like nobody's business. <laughs> We, I, I have this book from the tw uh, in the late early early um, the early 1900s. You guys have heard me mention miracles in a doctor's life, uh, written by Dr. Walter Wilson, and they're true stories. And at least, well, I don't know how many of the stories in there, but he has like 25 story, true stories of amazing conversions and people he shared the faith with. Uh, but he led at least two or three people to Christ that were young people that had grown up knowing the scriptures, knowing what they should do is uh, commit their life to Christ, but they walked away from the Lord, and God just caused their, their careers to fall apart, their health to fall apart, 
everything he did to drive, like the prodigal, so they were, had nothing and they had to basically crawl back to their cities where they were from and say, I need Jesus. And so we, we, uh, we like to scare our girls and tell them that um, we will pray you into misery. We will pray you in, uh, you, you won't pay your rent, your car will break down, your friends will desert you, all of it. That's, that's the way we roll in our house. So just, um, <laughs> hopefully, you can pray that way too. It, you got it. You can't just use the. Uh, uh, you can't just say everything's going to be perfect. I hope they're listening. They they seem to be listening when we talk to them. Verse twenty-two, we do love them. We would pray that they come back, and then once they came back, we'd pray that everything they're restored tenfold. Like verse twenty-two. A merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. A merry heart does good like medicine. Hmm. Think about it. Oftentimes, medicine in and of itself doesn't heal, but is part of the healing solution. Medicine itself often is, does not heal but can be part of the healing solution. And, it, and the verse actually references uh, kind of the wording here. Let's say you severely sprained a knee or an ankle, and then you follow the rice uh, pattern, you know, rest, ice, compression, elevation, right? You've all heard of that, right? And then it's, it's usually rice plus ibuprofen. Why? Well, that's the anti-inflammatory. So you have the rest and the ice and the compression and the elevation plus the anti-inflammatory. So you have a five-part solution. Ibuprofen is not the only part of the solution. There's four other parts. But ibuprofen is actually the only medicine of that five-part solution. Ice is not a medicine per se. I mean, it has healing properties and anti-inflammatory, but it's not a medicine. But you have these five parts. And ibuprofen plays a role in complementing the total solution. Likewise, a merry heart, in the Hebrew, this word merry means joyful or rejoicing or glad. Joyful, rejoicing, or glad. A merry heart doesn't fully heal an ailment. Look what the verse says. A merry heart does good like medicine. But medicine is not a cure-all. If it was, you'd never need to take ibuprofen ever again. It does good like medicine. A merry heart doesn't fully heal an ailment. It can't fully heal your injury. It can't fully heal sickness or some chronic condition. And some things can never be healed by a merry heart. Understand, Proverbs is not saying, you know, if you had a merry heart, you know, you heart disease gone, cancer gone, no. It's, can't heal everything. But don't discount it either. It does good like medicine. And it does play a role in the healing process, or it wouldn't be in the scriptures. George Herbert said, a cheerful look makes a dish a feast. We don't use that word anymore, but this is back in the, way back then. Yeah. A cheerful look makes a dish a feast. So a cheerful look looks at your bologna sandwich and says, that's better 
that I'm looking at it because I'm looking at it as God's been gracious. Our outlook, our ability to turn our frown upside down, our outlook comes from truth and faith in the scriptures. Truth and faith in scriptures, not from circumstances. You can feel absolutely miserable and say, Lord, I'm going to praise you anyway. And at first, it will feel like just rote motion. But the longer we do it, the more we see God actually is telling things here that are the secrets to some of what we're battling. We all battle emotions, and yet we're called to worship anyway. We're called to praise God. We're called to give thanks. It'll transcend our emotions, and it can even transcend the actual uh, way we feel physically at times. Not all the time, but, but on the other hand, a depressed spirit and really any attitude that's bothered or angry or sad or fearful or ungrateful or bitter or doubting or anxious, that if we stay there, and I'm not saying people want to stay there. No, no one I know wants to stay there, but yet people do stay there. And if you stay there, it just saps your healing power. It saps. It really starts to really even attack the immune system. They do, they've done studies that college kids that are stressing over exams get sick way more than kids that aren't stressed over the exams because it saps the immune system. And so our answer to it is say, well, I can't create a merry heart, but I can choose to praise. Then praising starts to push us to a merry heart, learning to praise, learning to worship when we don't feel like it. Verse 23, a wicked man accepts a bribe behind the back to pervert the ways of justice. We can be sure that a person led by the lust of their flesh can always be bought. Yeah, some people will say, I've heard people that, that in the world will say, anybody can be bought. No, that's not true. Not anybody can be bought. A lot of people can be bought. But I think if you study the life of the Apostle Paul, he, no one ever bought him off. There's people in history, not because they're more you know, immune to being bought off, but they have crucified the flesh with Christ, so therefore not going to be bought off anymore. But someone led by the flesh can be. Godly character in our leaders matters, doesn't it? It really does matter. You want people that can't be bought off, that can't be bribed. Verse 24, wisdom is in the sight of him who has understanding, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. Those who have chosen to follow the Lord... They see life through the lens of Scripture. And therefore, what God has said is actually more paramount than what their physical eyes can see. Do you see life through the lens of Scripture, or do you see life through the lens of advertising companies, entertainment, the shopping catalogs that come, you know, our natural flesh? Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we says we walk by faith, not by sight. We don't walk by sight. There's a lot of things that if we walk by sight, if we, if we truly walked by sight, we would want to throw in the towel on all kinds of things that the Scriptures say hold on to. Um, if we were saying, uh, well, if 
if this stuff was so true, then everybody would be following it. Jesus said quite the opposite. Broad is the road to destruction, and many there be that go that way. He said narrow is the way to eternal life, and few there be that find it. The precise opposite. Jesus said the very thing that everyone is running after is the very thing you might want to run, definitely want to run, the other direction. So we aren't led by the impulses and the cravings of what we see. We're led by what God says. Abraham, he could not see how he was going to have a son. Every doctor would have told him, uh, Abraham, I hate to break it to you, but uh, you and Sarah are not candidates for childbearing. Well, God told me I did. Well, then uh, I don't know who your God is, but he told you to leave Ur. You might want to go back, get a new God. But God kept his promise, right? I kind of felt like that. I walked in tonight. Tuan opened up worship, and there was like two people in the sanctuary. I'm like, all right, Lord, we're going to do this anyway. We're going to teach no, no matter what. We're... You don't walk by sight. Walk by faith. Final verses, verse 27, 28. You thought we wouldn't get through the whole chat. We have. Here we are. Right on time. He who has knowledge spares his words, and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace, when he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. If we walk in obedience to Christ and we're led by the Spirit, isn't it good to know God says he'll give us a calm spirit? Don't you want a calm spirit? You can't buy a calm spirit. You could, all these psychiatrists and psychologists and everybody else out there, they're taking, you know, God doesn't want you to pay 200 bucks an hour. You know, he, he, he doesn't want you to pay a dime to come to him. He says, I'll give you a calm spirit. And Now, don't be misunderstood. It may not come overnight because you have that fiery pot we talked about earlier, that refining pot. <laughs> Sometimes to get to the calm spirit, you have to go through the fiery pot. The refining of gold, it takes some time. And a lot of times we don't want to wait for that. So he said, well, look, give me this. Give me something. Give me some panacea that's easier. But if we'll wait, those that wait upon the Lord, he'll renew strength, he'll give a calm spirit, he'll give us understanding. And we're not easily going to be spun out of control. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. Well, we're not going to be easily spun out of control, and uh, we're not going to have circumstances say, well, I, I couldn't help just blabbing what came out of my mouth. No, well, the Holy Spirit will actually... The Holy Spirit has a way once, the longer we walk with it, He kind of slows seconds down to milliseconds. And you're able to process, no, that's not a good idea. You're able to not hit send on that email, pull back, right? Or that text. We'll be able to control the tongue because we'll be living life in the presence of Christ, Him and us and us and Him, abiding as John 15 talks about. So in all situations, we'll be able to spare our words and wisely use them to add the fragrance of Christ, to add the salt, to add the light, to add the seasoning to situations, to bring peace to situations, to ultimately bring Christ into situations. Amen? Let's close in prayer.